Grace upon grace to you, from Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. As I'm listening to that hymn, I wonder sometimes if these old hymn writers could just grasp deeper thoughts and put them into words in ways I couldn't even imagine our modern world doing to capture the Father's love begotten in Jesus Christ, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the source of all things. And that hymn expresses some deep thoughts that are well worth singing about and meditating on as we look tonight at the love that is coming into the world. What kind of love are you used to thinking about? And what does love look like? What does love look like when it comes into the world? As one song put it, it's more than words. Love is more than words, but our society seems to have trouble defining what it is. And so we kind of tiptoe around understanding what love is with sappy movies or with pictures of physical attraction. As love is talked about as something we fall into almost accidentally and we fall out of almost on purpose. Actually, our society is probably better at defining words like hate and hurt. Because hate and hurt actually capture more closely for us an understanding of what love is than all the other stuff they're going to put out there on TV and media that they're going to talk about in books. Because hate and hurt come from a source where there's supposed to be love. In the Bible, when it's trying to define love, it doesn't talk about it in strictly romantic terms because the Bible can also speak of the love of a parent toward a child. So in the story of Abraham and Isaac, when Abraham is told to give up his only son, the Bible says this is the son, his only begotten son, whom he loved. So it's the love of a father to a son. And this very same word is used to speak of love and marriage, Isaac loving Rebekah. But that shows us that love in a marriage has got to be more than just attraction and maybe more than just affection, that there's something more to it. When I look at the Old Testament's definition of love, I see it expressed in more than just one word. In fact, it's hard to capture the New Testament concept of love in the Old Testament with just one word. In the New Testament, when we talk about love and grace, it's building on previous thoughts, thoughts from the prophets, thoughts from Moses, that are defining for John, as he writes his gospel, what love is and what grace is. Because John is thinking out of a picture that comes from the Old Testament. Pictures like Abraham and Isaac. 
And maybe we could bring this out most fully to simply think through the story of the Exodus, in which you see God's love and more specifically his grace on display for what it really means. Now, in Exodus chapter 20, God gives the Ten Commandments. And in the very first commandment, we usually just learn the catechism version, you shall have no other gods, but it goes on into much more detail, saying you shall not make for yourself a carved image or anything that is like it in heaven above or that is earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, unlike any other spirit or god you're looking for in this world. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." So when God gives the first commandment, he gives it from the basis of love. He says he's a jealous God. Now, jealousy can be wrong and sinful, but in the context when God is speaking here as a jealous God, he's speaking as a husband. He's speaking as the one who redeemed his bride, saved her out of slavery, brought her to himself, and now he's going to make her his own. He's going to make a covenant with her that's going to last a lifetime. And so he says, I'm jealous if you are going to go astray from that covenant, from that agreement and that commitment and that sacrifice that I'm giving, if you go somewhere else to some other bride or some other spouse is going to upset me. I'm going to be jealous. And for those who are doing this out of hatred, he is going to visit them to demonstrate what it means to leave him behind and break the covenant. But to those who love him, he will show love also. So this is set up as the first commandment. Then the story goes on. Moses leads the people. They've made it out to the mountain. And as they're on the mountain, Moses seems to be taking a while. In chapter 32, the people see that Moses is delayed. Why is he taking so long? And so they gather themselves together. In fact, he's up there for 40 days and 40 nights. Why is he taking so long? So they gather together to Aaron, the high priest, and they say, make us gods who shall go before us. As for Moses, the man who brought us here, we don't know what happened to him. He went up to the mountain a long time ago, the mountain that's thundering with lightning and clouds and big trumpet blasts. They probably all figured he was dead. So they're going to have to find a new god and a new leader. So they craft a golden calf. Now, as God knows what's going on, he begins talking with Moses on the mountain. So the scene shifts to Moses on the mountain. And then God is having this conversation, the people are going astray in their hearts. I'm going to go down there and consume them. And this is where the conversation between Moses and God becomes so intimate and so special that at one point, the writer says, 
Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So if you were looking for an Old Testament figure who could personify a close relationship with the Lord, what it means to be close to the Lord in a loving relationship, everyone in John's day would say, oh, that's easy. It's Moses. He spoke to Moses as a man speaks to his friend. And so Moses begins pleading with his friend, saying four times he pleads with him. There's four intercessions in the story of the golden calf that Moses is pleading with the Lord. And don't worry, I'm going to get back to John 1. Moses is pleading with the Lord. He pleads for his mercy. He pleads for his a sacrifice where Moses is ready to give himself up. He pleads for his favor. And he says to God, show me your glory. The Lord begins to respond to each of these cries for help. And he has mercy. He has atonement. He has favor. And the Lord says, I will show you my glory. So if you wanted to see what God was like, if you said, I want to stand with God face to face and see what he's like, well, first of all, it would destroy you. The Lord says, no man has seen my face and you cannot see my face. Even Moses couldn't see God's face for a man shall not see me and live. In other words, whatever God is, because he's so far beyond our conception, to see his fullness, to see him as he really is, we couldn't bear it. It would destroy us. He's that great and awesome and amazing and powerful. And so he says, I will do this instead. I'll place you into the cleft of this rock and I'm going to pass by. And as I pass by, I'm going to turn my shoulders to you so you don't see my front. You're going to see my back. And as I'm passing by, so God is trying to describe whatever that means is he's going to show who he is, but he's going to do it hidden. It's going to be hidden from the fullness of his glory. And as he does this, he proclaims, he cries out his own name. And he says, I am the Lord, a God who is merciful and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You know, sometimes when you read these Old Testament stories, you lose sight of it because you get hung up on the moment where God has reached a limit or a moment where people have gone so far, there's no turning back. And you think, boy, he sounds like an angry God. But that's only because you've only read one chapter. You didn't read the 40 chapters that led up to that where God was mercifully pleading with Pharaoh, where God was pleading with the whole world at the time of the flood, where God's heartbroken and struggling and jealous to rescue back his people. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping his love for thousands, forgiving sin, but yet not clearing the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. So in that description of God's glory, remember he's showing Moses his glory. 
He says that to see his glory is to understand his character, who he is, what he does. And what he does is he has steadfast love and faithfulness. And those are the two key words there. They're Hebrew words, hesed and emeth, which mean a loyal commitment, as hesed, and a commitment to follow through an action. That's faithfulness. So both those words are describing, one, the heart of God, and two, the action of God. The heart of God is that steadfast commitment to you, to not give up, to keep loving, to keep caring, to remember his promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and on down through the generations. But it doesn't stay in the heart of God. It then goes into action, and that's his faithfulness to follow through on what he said he would do because love is more than words, right? We need a love that has skin on it. So as we come back to John now, we see that what was happening with Moses, where God had hidden it away, his glory, he could only glimpse just a a glimmer of God's glorious presence, is now given in its fullness. How could this be possible? How could God make it possible that the fullness of his glory that he said, Moses, if you see this, It's going to destroy you, so I will limit what you see to telling you my promises and my character. And now with Jesus in John chapter 1, he says, John says, his fullness we have received. This is how it happens. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word that was spoken to Moses the word that contained those concepts I was talking about, steadfast love and faithfulness, the word that Moses spoke to the people becomes flesh, human, lives among us, and we, John, have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. Does that sound familiar? No one has ever seen God. The only God, or in some translations, the only begotten Son who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. As you think about Moses, the story of Moses, the events that unfolded there, you can't escape the parallels to what John is talking about now, beholding the glory of God. The comparison between Moses and Jesus. The reference to grace, which in the Old Testament would be the steadfast love of God, and truth, which in the Old Testament was his faithfulness abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
Well, when God's steadfast love and his faithfulness come into our world, in Jesus Christ, we can then see it with skin on. Because love, when it comes from God, is more than words. It's more than God just making a bunch of promises. It's more than God just saying really nice things that might make you feel good. But what happens when we put skin on it? What happens when love has human form? Well, I'll tell you what happens. It gets hurt. It gets scarred. It bleeds. I once heard what I think is probably the best definition of love or grace as a rugged commitment. What love really is in the Bible is rugged commitment. It's a commitment that is willing to take the beatings of other people and still stay committed and still have a heart that stays committed to not lashing out back, that still stays committed to doing the right thing. A rugged commitment That's the love of a parent. I mean, parents can get hurt and frustrated with their kids, but there's a rugged commitment to that child no matter what. When we love, we also hurt. And Jesus now comes into our world so that we can behold the glory of God, just like Moses on the mountain, but now we're seeing the fullness Out of his fullness we have received, and the key word then is grace, full of grace and truth. So I'd like you to think of grace, like I said with Moses, is what's in the heart of God. And truth is when God goes into action. So grace is God's heart commitment. It's what motivates him. It's his first impulse when we deserve nothing, when we're dead, when we're lost, when we're rebelling, when we're not even created yet, it's grace that's his first impulse toward us to be loving, to give. And then when it goes into action, it's truth. So that everything Jesus does is true. Everything he says is true. Truth can't be known without Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. You know, grace appears in this text, I think four or five times. First it says, he's full of grace and truth in 14. Then in the middle, we've received grace upon grace. And then at the end, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So you have grace and truth, grace and truth, and in the middle of the sandwich is grace upon grace upon grace. Now it's, it's building up these words. And that grace upon grace upon grace is God being like a spring or a fountain out of his heart is that even after we've just received grace once and then we've done something we shouldn't do, though the grace comes again. And it keeps coming to the point that all mankind turns against God, crucifies his son, and yet out of it comes grace. 
The strange thing is, this is the last time John uses the word grace in all of his gospel. Why would John use the word grace five times right here and then not use it anymore throughout all the rest of the gospel? I mean, with light, with love, with truth, with these other words, you see him repeating it throughout. But grace, no, it's right central to this text. It's the last time he uses it. Well, I would say, this is just my theory, but grace is what starts in the heart of God, motivating him to send his son into human flesh to suffer. And then everything else you see once he becomes human is the outward expression of grace that doesn't need the word anymore. Because then it all becomes truth. Because we know love is more than words. It is also truth. The truth of Jesus in what he does. So I'd like to give you a picture to think about and take this thought home with you. If this were the glory of God, it would destroy us all by itself. So we look on the glory of God. It's beautiful. It's bright. It's exciting. But if we get too close, it destroys us. Now, John says, from his glory, we have received something. From his fullness, we have received. We've We've seen his glory. So how could we see God's glory? Moses said it would destroy him. Well, it's because of the heart of God. And the heart of God changes that glory that once could never be conceived or seen by us. And now it changes it into something we can see, something we can bear. But if all we had was his glory and his grace, we still wouldn't have enough without the cross. And this is his truth. So John is saying, we've received his glory. We've seen his glory. And the way that we've seen his glory is through the cross. And the cross makes it possible for us to behold his glory, to see the greatness of his sacrifice for us. But if we didn't have, if this is all we had, then we would have a glorious God whose son we killed and we'd be all left mourning, lost, scared, and hiding. Which is why he adds grace to it. So we behold the glory of God, the truth of the cross, because of the heart of God's grace. And it's from the heart that then Jesus does everything else, goes into action, suffering, bearing our sins on the cross to bring us the truth of salvation. And it's all because we know God loves us. That's what's motivating him. So even after the cross, then we can behold this and not be afraid of the cross, not be afraid of the fact that we have sinned because we know it's from his grace that he's giving all of these things to us.
John wants us to know, and as we go into the Gospel of John after the new year, we want to be looking for this grace in action, how John sees it, he experiences it, with a Savior who feeds us with bread in the wilderness, who washes our feet, who cries at the tomb of Lazarus, who gives himself up for us. Amen.